0: Chapter 7 of The Coming People. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Coming People by Charles F. Dole. Chapter 7 The Law of Cost. There is a profound law of life that may already have astonished us. It is the law by which everything bears a burden of cost. Life itself proceeds by a nice balance of profit and loss. Higher life comes at the expense of lower forms. Death itself is a constant factor of life. Nothing is gained anywhere except at some expense, we may almost literally say, by the shedding of blood. All effort is thus a sort of dissolution of tissue. As Paul almost pathetically writes, we die daily. At first sight we are always tempted to quarrel with this law. Here is the seamy side of life, the reverse side to the pattern. There is no beauty in this side seen by itself. We are disposed to question whether the balance of the total account is not dead loss. Consider the sum of the sufferings of myriads of animals by tooth and claw, by famine and cold, since the world began. Review the weary annals of human history, the torture, the crime, the greed, the sorrows of the innocent, the waste of martyr's blood. Or single out any individual life, and sum up the debit side of the account. Think of the cost and cares and tears which the mother pays as the price of her love for husband and children. Count up the cost of any of the great noble lives, of a Moses, an Isaiah, a Jesus. Try to value what Washington or Lincoln gave for his country. Here are typical cases standing for millions of humble and unthanked patriots. As you add up this debit side, you will often be appalled at the cost with which life must be purchased there is a current doctrine that goes far toward denying the law of cost altogether you will sometimes be told that there is no pain unless you make it by your own wrong thought if therefore the heroes and martyrs had only possessed the secret of this pleasing philosophy they might not merely have smiled on their enemies but they would not have suffered a twinge of pain under the most refined cruelty of torquemada or nero we are told that it was no deep law that the patriot the lover the reformer the philanthropist the christ must always pay blood for blood to win the world's liberties the sanctities of home the redemption of society the triumph of justice the enfranchisement of the soul of man on the contrary the true sons and daughters of god never need bear a cross nor even sympathize with suffering it is a question whether they need to die this strange doctrine simply ignores facts. Indeed, it is an enormous exaggeration of a certain important truth, essential to all valid religion, as to the empire of the spirit over the body, of mind over matter. There is no realm of human life where you can ignore the rule of cost, except at your peril, or at the expense of others who must pay your debts for you. You cannot think away the broken bone, the rotten cable, the faulty iron plate in your ship's bottom, the knot in the stick of timber, the plague spots of filthy Bombay. You must atone in every particular for the fault or the fracture. You must pay the whole cost of repair, of cleansing the slums of the suffering city, of replacing the timber that cannot bear the stress of the passing train. You must pass your debts in honest money, earned by honest effort, perchance in the sweat of your brow. Shall we break up our divine universe into two kingdoms? Shall we perhaps admit that the debit side of the world is under an alien and evil power, and its law of cost is the tribute to some mighty Satan? If we say this, we must give up our science likewise, talk no more of the one and eternal, return by the way of man's ancient superstitions, and people space with warring powers. We must pull down our observatories and predict no more eclipses. The great world is either framed of one structure throughout, or else it is chaos. Human life is either the child of the universe or it is a sport of chance. No, we live in a universe of inexorable conditions. It is solemnly structural and orderly throughout. There is beauty in it, but there is also that which commands awe and reverence. There is sternness and vigor to match vastness and unity. Everywhere are differences, shades, degrees, contrast, which no one can think out of existence. We may even reverently hold that this law of cost is in the nature of the Almighty and goes to make up His perfection. There is a sense in which God also suffers, and without this suffering, his life, his joy, and his love might not be complete. At any rate, if we do not believe in the universe as it is, if we do not wish to obey its conditions, if we want life on other terms, if we choose not to pay our share in its expense, if we propose to get good from it and never to give, it is vain to set our backs to fight against it. Here it is with its laws, the great law of cost among them, and here are we face to face with its conditions. What do we propose to do? We have so far looked at the law of cost on only one side, but he would be a very foolish man who insisted upon examining the debit side of his books and never asked the question what his assets are. The grand question of life is not what it cost, though the cost were ten times more burdensome than it is. The cardinal question is, is life worth the cost? If we have won net gain, if the race of man on the whole sees new gains in view wherewith to redeem the expense, if nobler kinds of gain already begin to appear, if the splendid harvest which the gifted few have reaped promises to grow and become universal, and to put all kinds of famine away, the famine of faith and love is truly as the famine of bread, if, therefore, when the accounts are finally in, the balance is right, our divine universe is justified. Let us make some inquiries and try to discover what the indications are touching the actual working of our law of cost. Let us ask one of our boys who comes in from his game of ball what he thinks about it. We will not ask the boy from the winning side. We will put our question to the boy who has been defeated. Here he stands, tired, dusty, hungry. He has paid the full cost for his fun. Is he sorry that he played? Not in the least. He has no complaint to make against the universe. Maybe he is hurt. Will he therefore give up playing? No, he is all ready to try the joyous risk again. Take now to the eyes of the mere pessimist, the most pitiable case on record. Ask Jesus what he thinks of the law of cost. Is it worthwhile to be a poor man, to consort with peasants, to be insulted and mocked, to hang at last on a cross? The world has made an egregious mistake if Jesus does not tell us, yes, I would do this all over again for what it brought. Of all men who have lived, Jesus has no complaint to urge against the universe. But Jesus' case seems to come too conspicuous and exceptional. Well then, I maintain that the whole beauty of it is that it is typical and universal. Let us take the most common and humble instance. Let us ask a mother, any one of thousands of good women, inconspicuous and unthanked, whether she grudges the cost of her motherhood. Let us even ask her, whom death has bereaved, whether sweet memories and love and hope all marvelously blended, are not perpetually worth the price which she paid for them. Plenty of women will confirm this wonderful fact, although with tears still in their eyes. I have been speaking of those who stood up to the majestic law and stoutly paid the full cost, who scorned to shirk the universal conditions. The record of human experience goes one way. Those who obey the seemingly inexorable natural law and pay their tribute to duty, stern daughter of the voice of God, are those who presently assure her that flowers laugh before thee on their beds and fragrance in thy footing treads, thou dost preserve the stars from wrong, and the most ancient heavens through thee are fresh and strong." We are reminded of those who were failures, of the Pilots and Judases, and the nameless multitude of cheap, false, and ineffectual lives. We have already seen that these have had their reward. They got what they were willing to pay for. They only did not gain what they did not try for. They often thought themselves successful. Shall we blame the great universe that its laws, urging us all the way of noble life, can never make cheap prosperity permanent or beautiful? God is educating mankind to reality. See, he seems to say by all manner of object lessons, how vain unreality is, how unsubstantial is selfishness. On the contrary, how enduring and gracious are truth and love. The fact is the credit side of the universe is glorious already with its figures of gain here you have qualities virtues beauties ecstasies the lives of divine men immeasurable values here often a single splendid name a Phidias, a dante a michelangelo a zwingli outshines whole generations already at the close of the nineteenth century literature is growing rich with the inspiring biographies of poets teachers philanthropists investors statesmen discoverers men of science men of faith sometimes also plain and quiet people whom the world hardly knew like william and lucy smith and mrs lyman of northampton types of other lives quite unrecognized and unpraised but equally high-minded and helpful making the world nobler where the light was shed on the corner of boston common close to the state house stands the Shaw monument commemorating the deeds of heroes but no public monument tells the story of the man who, more than anyone else, by his untiring energy, his faith, his utterly disinterested and modest service to his Commonwealth and his country, brought the famous black regiment together. George L. Stearns, the friend of Emerson, the indefatigable helper of Governor Andrew, the efficient arm behind John Brown in Kansas, the earnest lover of liberty. Let his name stand for thousands of the modest and true-hearted, the full power and significance of whose lives is hardly ever measured till after they are gone. Is it not worthwhile that the creation should groan and travail and pain together, when the buds and flowers of this quite infinite fruitage begin to be seen? Give us more of the same sort. Lift common manhood and womanhood toward their superb possibilities. Show us in farms and shops and a million homes the awakening of the divine humanity. Give us not one son of god only but sons and daughters of god in every city the very fact which our great prophecy heralded and all the weary eons of past time are justified what are mortal years or human toil or blood measured against immortal beauty but could not god do all this with better economy could he not just as well save the trouble and cost and be generous and give his children life for nothing why should not an omnipotent god give his creatures a universe free from conditions why possess infinite wisdom and not contrive to expunge this dreary, debit side of creation? Let us see first what Son of God wants life on insignificant terms. Let us expel from the world all the austerity and solemnity. Let us be rid of all nerves that can feel pain. Let us have done with contrast, with storms, with night, with heat or cold, with hunger and thirst. Let no child ever cry for help or pity. Let no friend sorrow make a draft on our own sympathy. Shut out temptation. Take away the spurs that incite to effort and progress. Blot out the words that describe evil. Leave what? Leave food and drink, ease, comfort, sleep, a monotone of existence. Do you desire this? You have been removing at every step the terms which constitute life. You have no virtue, no aspiration, no faith, hope, or love. Nothing to distinguish beauty as such. No rhythm. Nothing infinite. There is no height without depth to match. There is no faith without doubt. There is no hope where there is no fear. There can be no love where no sympathy is demanded for suffering. The Almighty Wisdom could not make such a universe as we have imagined. The far-seeing love would not accept it. Even God must keep His own conditions. God must obey the laws which He imposes. The laws are the expression of His love. That there is a stern severity in nature infers the presence of majestic pity also, and a beneficent purpose. There is a suffering and sorrow in God as there is a God of love and joy. The Christ story here illustrates an eternal and universal fact. What is in one life is in all lives, because all flow from the life of God. The infinite life is not less full on account of this mighty fact. End of chapter 7